You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay. Um, that uh, bit of a rant from me at the beginning of this show. Um, yeah, I'm not apologizing for it. I, I'm going to double down on it in the coming months. Uh, this is a serious year. And I think you guys who are listening are smart enough and serious enough and thoughtful enough for conversations that, you know, are not name calling, but are somewhat complicated. And that's why I wanted my first guest this year to be Jennifer Bircher, who you, you met last year with me. She writes about education and politics. She's the author of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. She has a podcast, Have You Heard? It's about education policy. She uh, um, teaches at both Boston College and UMass UMass and Amherst. Um, and, and I, you know, I think education is core to our democracy. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Jennifer, welcome back. Happy New Year. Uh, thanks so much. And I'm so flattered and honored to be your first guest of 2024. What a great choice. Thank you. I think it is a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be um, honest and transparent about where I'm coming from with you, because this is a show about politics and democracy, not about education policy. But, you know, I have, have read John Dewey. I think education and democracy are deeply connected. So I think it's important we talk about schools and their role in society and how education and c- citizenship are related. Um But I don't think we can have that discussion first without talking about how politics is using education for purposes unrelated to student growth. Um, And I know you've looked at this a lot. You know, I I think reality has a habit of intervening in every fantasy, even if it takes a while. And this year, reality intervened a little bit on the Republican uh, 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 culture war fantasy in our schools. I mean, I think they took advantage of the passions of COVID during the shutdowns um, where mistakes were clearly made, right? But but the right made teachers their enemy. Then they created organizations like Moms for Liberty to lead the fight. Then they, they saddled up and rode the horse straight into the ground in 2023 when they lost about every school board race they contested. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Moms for Liberty turned out to be Moms for Libertines. Um, has, the, has, the, has the culture war at least started to run its course? I, you know, I think it's really tempting to look at the election results, and you're only exaggerating slightly about just how poorly these candidates fared. It's mm-hmm. really important to to look at those results in the larger context. And on the one hand, candidates fared really poorly, and on the other hand, this stuff continues to really animate the Republican base. And so if you go to a Trump rally, some of the loudest applause lines that he gets are for education-related lines. And, you know, talking about the fact that he will immediately cut federal funding to any school that teaches, quote unquote, critical race theory, um, that, you know, his his pledge to to go after schools and and teachers that that are foisting what he calls gender ideology on kids. And and finally, you know, like he loves to talk about how our schools have basically been taken over by pink haired Marxists. 
And when he talks that way, his base goes crazy. And as long as that is the case, you're going to continue to see all sorts of candidates running on this stuff. And so it creates this kind of interesting tension where the the like the smart strategic folks recognize that they are losing race after race when they present these issues to an electorate that goes beyond primary voters. But, you know, you have uh, you have people running for office who are courting those primary voters right now. And I'll give you an example. If you look at a state like Missouri, just over the border from you, there, you know, legislators are talking about their priorities for the year and they're admitting, you know, maybe, maybe we went a little too far last year with our obsessive focus on gay and trans kids. You know, maybe that was a mistake. And, you know, this year we're going to be more grown up and, and we're going to, uh, we're going to do, you know, we're going to focus more on, on stuff that voters actually care about. But then you have the folks who are running for office, like the, there's a candidate, a senator who is running for governor in 2024. We uh, we first caught sight of him on social media. He was taking a flamethrower, a literal flamethrower yeah. to what he called the woke agenda. Well, one of his campaign pledges is to eliminate the state department of education in Missouri, um, because he argues that it's, it's basically become an agency tasked with indoctrinating kids. Now, 75% of the people who work for that department work with handicapped, blind and deaf students. Like that's who he's talking about, uh, getting rid of. So I, I think that, that even though there's going to be a temptation among people who have looked at those election results, to to say, folks, we need to we need to drop some of the culture war stuff. I don't think it's going anywhere. So that's really interesting. I mean, they're they're <clears throat> this culture war side. This they're indoctrinating our kids. <clears throat> and th- this is this is not uh, only about questions of gender identity. The biggest thing they they worry about is history, where they. They are trying to rewrite it. I mean, this is January 6th, for God's sake. They've spent three years trying to rewrite the history of that day to lie about what happened. But they've also embraced the so-called 1776 Project, which is a completely dishonest whitewashing of American history, which um, which they're pushing in the schools. And if people don't buy that version of history – we end up hearing exactly the, these, these cries at these rallies that, that schools are indoctrinating kids. And, and I guess if you fight somebody else's indoctrination, I guess you're guilty of some other kind of indoctrination. That's their view. Well, so I think that that's a really interesting point. And one of the things, one of the reasons why I am absolutely convinced that this stuff isn't going anywhere is that on virtually every issue, an enormous gulf has opened up between the way that young people see the world and the way that adults see the world, especially older Americans. And so by every measure, whether it's things like, you know, be their acceptance of, of LGBTQ Americans or the belief that, that 
the United States needs a much more activist government when it comes to things like making health care and college affordable. By, you know, by every measure, the kids are more progressive than their parents and other adults. And so that is what is driving a lot of this. And so you have these legislators working in tandem with, with policymakers who think, well, if we can somehow change, if we can, you know, present a different version of history, if we can whitewash it, if we can uh, take out, strip out the parts of the curriculum that have kids working together to address a problem, somehow they're going to reverse engineer the kids and make them more conservative. I I don't see this happening. And, and then, you know, the other part of this that I think really has changed and become much more apparent in the three years since we started hearing about things like the 1776 project is that there's a much more open attempt among conservatives to move kids out of public schools or government schools, as they call them, and into private religious schools, that Christian education is actually the goal. So I, I did. that's on my list of things to talk to you about. Um, um, and we can talk about that now. I got something else I'll come back to. So, so um, it's not just the, I mean, it's related to the culture war, but there's a big greed component to this too, I think. And, and that's the whole privatization movement. Some of it, I think a big chunk, as you say, is to Christian schools and this, this, now we have a Christian public school that's going to be tested right up to the Supreme Court. You should talk about that. But the right wing attack on public schools is is an institutional attack. Let's just privatize the whole thing. And if that means that uh, religious schools are where kids go, that's great. But if they go to a strip mall in Arizona to, you know, something that just somebody sets up and calls it a school, it's up on, you know, buyer beware. Right. Yeah, there. I mean, that like so that is certainly a piece of this. You know, we spend an enormous amount of money on public education. It's the largest single line item in most state budgets. Um, There's been some great journalism lately about how how much of the money in these voucher programs that have been enacted in one state after another is really being enacted to prop is going to prop up failing church schools, especially Catholic schools. So Mm -hmm. that's part of it, right? That there are a lot of of folks who look at that money and think, I'd like a piece of it. But I think the larger conflict is really, it's really ideological. And the, the, you know, they, they look at the demographics. They look at that polling data that I was just describing. And they Mm -hmm. realize that they are, you know, they, they paint this as a battle for the souls of the kids of America, and they realize that they're losing. And that somehow, you know, if they can just, you know, if they can get the kids into conservative Christian schools, schools that don't have to accept gay kids, Kids who don't have to, uh, schools that don't have to accept kids whose parents aren't married, um, uh, schools that can charge parents money um, above and beyond the cost of the voucher. They think that they can slow down the pace of cultural change, but 
also, you know, mint more conservative voters. That's a lot of what it's about. And then you know, there's also a piece of it that's just it's it's straight out of the post Brown versus Board of education era. And that's the monumental Supreme Court case that said that school segregation is no longer going to be permissible. And so you started to see these southern states say, well, if the courts are going to insist that schools of different races, uh, kids of different races have to attend school together, we're going to do anything we can to get out from under the reach of the courts. We're going to send kids to private religious schools. And that's, that is so much what we see happening right now. Yeah, it's straight out of the 1650s and the fight <laughs> against the Enlightenment. Well, you know, well, let's just take dogma from God and forget everything else. And if you want to teach something else, well, that's a danger to the, danger to the established order. Let's, um, we should talk about that, that Catholic charter school, because I think this is a story we're going to be hearing a lot about in 2024. And your listeners might not have heard about it. So charter schools are, have been around since the nineties. They are publicly funded, privately managed. And the thinking was that, that these, you know, independent schools would, you know, they would function with less, you know, what people often refer to uh, deriding is red tape and that by by freeing up teachers and administrators uh, a thousand flowers would bloom there would be all sorts of innovation and and as a result student achievement would would rise and we could have we could do a whole show on what has actually happened with that respect but I think people on the right very smartly saw that this was also an opportunity to realize one of their priorities which is taxpayer-funded religious education. And so over the last couple of years, conservatives in Oklahoma got very excited and they uh, got permission to open up a publicly funded Catholic charter school. And this charter school will, uh, it will be organized along the tenets of the the, uh, Catholic church. Um, people who work there, both the uh, students who attend the school and the people who work at the school are expected to follow Catholic tenets. So um, you can't, you know, you can't be gay. Um, and then the other thing that I think is really concerning about it is that everyone, if you read through the the proposal that the the archdiocese submitted for this school, they plan on treating every person who works at the school as a minister. What does that mean? That means that because of a trend in Supreme Court cases, those employees are basically going to be exempt from huge swaths of labor law. And so you can start to see where this is going, that, you know, like uh, you have a bipartisan effort to create schools, public, a public-private partnership. Here we are 30 years later, and the religious right very smartly sees this as an opportunity to get rid of all kinds of other things it doesn't like, including labor law. Yeah, I, my own evolution on charter schools is... Uh, been dramatic. In the 90s, I thought it was a wonderful idea. And I had been a public school teacher in Chicago. And I thought, wow, if we could demonstrate somehow that there's a way to have successful public schools out of this 
um, dysfunctional Board of Ed that we had, the Board of Ed would learn and it would get better. Um, but the um, uh, the teachers union and the, and the forces on the left fought it. And as you say, on the right, they figured out how to cheat with it. Um, and now uh, uh, it, it's only being abused. I, I just I think it's a, a, a unbalanced dangerous now. The, I think the other important thing to keep in mind is that we are we are seeing a big push um, uh, among the right, but it goes beyond that. You know, state attorney generals, like all all kinds of influential folks, to reclassify charter schools as private. And and you think about the like if we went around Chicago, we would notice that uh, that most charter schools have public in their names, right? That mm-hmm. they're public charter schools, and the understanding is that they're publicly funded, and in exchange for that funding, they are um, there is all sorts of oversight. There are accountability rules. That's why we're always hearing about their their test scores. But there is a, a case that has been um, it made it almost to the Supreme Court last year. This was a, a case that came out of North Carolina where um, a charter school had strict a strict dress code that girls had to wear skirts, boys had to wear pants, and that there was an, an effort to pretty much you know teach kids rules of chivalry. And so the girls were fragile vessels, and that's why they had to wear skirts. A couple of parents said, you know what, we like this is supposed to be a public school. This seemed, why are you in Enforcing this outdated code of behavior, and so the it, it, it courts kept bouncing it around. But the argument that conservatives were making was that, um, you know what? Actually, these schools are not public; they're private. And so chunks of the Fourteenth Amendment, the Equal Protection Rules, won't apply to them. And so we're, you know, we're looking at a situation where, in addition to things like religious charter schools. We could see states beginning to enact policies that basically declare charter schools as private as well. And that, you know, that, that can mean that in states like Florida and Arizona, that you're suddenly looking at a third up to, you know, a half of the, the, your public school kids suddenly in a sector that's defined as private with none of the rights that extend to kids in public schools. That's really concerning. And, and um, it's terrifying. There are also schools where um, where the curriculum is being adjusted to include. I mean, I've looked at those videos from PragerU. PragerU, for those who are listening, is not an accredited university, but it calls itself PragerU. They're a propaganda shop, and they and their videos are appalling. Basically, cartoon versions of the debunked 1776 Commission's view of American history. Total right-wing fantasy. But, Jennifer, these are being now distributed in schools. How is that possible? Well, I think it's really important to acknowledge that what we're seeing are a lot of press releases from PragerU and from firebrand education policy folks. I'm thinking of somebody like a Ryan Walters in Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he's a big fan of filming. He likes to film incendiary videos of himself, you know, while he drives his car, you know, warning against teachers indoctrinating and turning kids transgender. So even though you're seeing a lot of headlines, 
there's very little evidence that this stuff is actually making its way into schools. And I think it's important to, to think about that a little bit. Like, why, you know, why are they making such a big deal about this stuff if teachers aren't actually using it, right? There, it's not, you can't find, there aren't places where teachers are being required to show PragerU videos. And what my uh, my co-author and podcast co-host, education historian Jack Schneider and I have argued, is that the real goal here is to paint a picture of public education in this country is something we're so hopelessly divided over that it's no longer possible to have to really like go to school together. Right. That like you're a conservative. And so that means that you want to go someplace where you can watch PragerU videos. I'm a liberal. That means that, you know, I want my kids going to someplace where they're required to read the 1619 project. So actually, like the the larger wow. effort here is to sort of to sow distrust. And so, like, think about, you know, think about what, like, what happens when, and anytime a liberal reads a headline like that, you know, PragerU videos now being shown in Florida schools, they'll, you'll see people, you know, sharing on the site that used to be known as Twitter or on Facebook, you know, um, I'm like, I will not consent to having my kids watch these videos. Like, that's exactly the point, right? To paint this picture that, that every aspect of what our schools do is, is being fought over and that really the best we can do is just go our separate ways. Wow. I mean, if we go our separate <laughs> ways in school, we go our separate ways as a nation. Um, that, that's right. And that's think about like here you are. It's the start. We're we're recording this on the anniversary of January 6th, an event that like no other demonstrates the extent to which we have gone our separate ways as a nation. Now, imagine that in every aspect of American public education, that that split is reaffirmed and deepened. Imagine what our future would be like. It's It's really scary. Yeah, I'm not smart enough to do that in real time. You have just given me homework for the rest of the week because this is the implications of this are are um, many and varied for sure, and none of them very good. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that you're absolutely right, and the the really what I take so much hope from is that the reason that these culture war candidates have fared so poorly in election cycle after election cycle is that American parents do not want to see their schools treated in this political manner, right? Like that, that's what they're rejecting. And, and so that presents a challenge for those of us who might be trying to make, say, the progressive case for public education. We have to learn to talk about the importance of, of education that's, that's paid for by taxpayers and, and comes with democratic oversight. We have to make the case for it in a way that doesn't politicize it. Because if we end up politicizing it, we walk right into that trap that the Prager you folks want us to walk into. Yeah, I am 100% with you on that. And I think that's a lesson 
for many aspects of our political fight this year, that um, this isn't a left-right policy fight. It is a, we're still one country. We do have a shared set of facts. And um, just because one group is pretending that we don't doesn't make it true. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to prove them true by retreating to the opposite corner. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and I think it's it's really heartening that you know when you actually have the opportunity to to talk to say conservative parents who might be really concerned about something like critical race theory or gender ideology and you actually get them to talk about what they'd like to see schools do you immediately see all kinds of overlap and so that's why i think it's so important to pay attention to these issues you mentioned at the top of the segment that you know like on the one hand this is really you know you you think of your show as being about politics and i'm somebody who focuses on education i think these community conversations and state level conversations really represent an opening for us to to move folks in a way that a lot of other issues simply don't they're the glue that holds us together absolutely this is where parents and and neighbors come together and talk about what's most important to them and if you actually if, if you if you look if you you know you can look at communities that have gone through these bitter election cycles where say you know like a slate of parents rights activists take back our schools activists um, end up losing, and and inevitably, cycle after cycle, you'll see that the candidates who are winning are winning because they're painting uh, a broader, more inclusive, more positive vision of not just what they want the schools to look like, but what they want the community to look like. And yeah. so, you know, as much attention as the, you know, the Moms for Liberty and Moms for Libertines, as you call them, as much attention as they've gotten over the last few years, I think it's actually a lot more important to be focused on communities where those messages have gone down in flames and ask, you know, what can we learn from those places? It's so interesting because I've had the I've had a very similar conversation with people about the Supreme Court. When I asked people um, on the left, if they had the choice would they just appoint a left-leaning version of Sam Alito? And they are repulsed by the question. They say, no, it, it, it isn't about we have different policy choices. It's about somebody has to be focused on jurisprudence, on the way the law works, on, on uh, respect for precedent. The, the, the jurisprudential way of acting is not to politicize the court. So I don't want to put in a left-wing politicization politicizer of the court to counter a right one, that just is his path to nowhere. And you're saying the exact same thing about school boards. They have a different job. Their job isn't politics. Their job is what's the best way we can come together and think about raising our kids in a democracy. That, so it's it's so true. And, and the more the more polarized we get and the more, you know, tempting it is to, to view every single issue through a starkly partisan lens, 
the, you know, the more tempting it is. You know, I saw, you know, someone, a writer who I think really highly of wrote a, a piece encouraging members of Democratic Socialists of America to run for school board. And my heart just sank when Oops. I saw that because I thought, like, <laughs> that is absolutely a recipe how for disaster. Yeah. That's, how, that's how we lose. Yeah. I mean, I... I <laughs> they, <laughs> In your head, it's so hard not to, it's hard, it's so easy to make the mistake. Um, I do not believe America is more divided than it ever was. I really don't believe that. One political party has radicalized dramatically, you know, and Donald Trump doesn't look like George W. Bush, who didn't look like his father, who looked like nothing, you know, like Nixon. Um, um, Joe Biden looks like, you know, it could be any of a long line of Democrats. Democrats haven't moved so far, the Republicans have really radicalized. And, and, um, so it looks like we're more polarized than we are. And I don't think we're more divided than when, oh, I don't know, we had separate fountains by race in America mm-hmm. or when women were banned from most professions. I think we are less divided in some fundamental and, and big ways. Um, and th- we don't talk about that much because we have a political party that gets all the news that's been radicalized. I think that's a really interesting way to think about things because we've now been through repeated election cycles where the results end up being sort of radically at odds with the story we keep being told. And that is that, you know, Republicans are ascendant, um, culture war issues are attracting people across party lines. And, and so we've had, you know, like multiple states where I think people would say, oh, you know, abortion ended up being, uh, like an, an issue that really motivated people. But I actually think that education has ended up being, you know, an, an issue that has been just as important, um, partly because of the, you know, that, that really after Glenn Youngkin's surprise win in Virginia, that really became an issue that Republicans rallied around. But, you know, like again and again, we've seen voters step up and say, you know what, we don't, we're not going to go along with this vision of the world in which, you know, we're, we're not just divided, but the, you know, you're going to take us back in time, right? Like the, like they're sort of insisting upon uh, a normalcy and, you know, and, and while abortion has been a big part of that, I think the, one of the big questions for 2024 is the extent to which education and the efforts to politicize it, dismantle it and, and really, uh, you know, Christianize it. That's not even a word. Is whether those things are going to to motivate voters in the form of a backlash? Yeah, I mean, again, counterintuitive because of the language the right wing uses. But really, whether you're talking about abortion or you're talking about their agenda in schools, um, you're talking about massive, radical government action, government overreach. Um, not something conservative by any measure, but really um, dismantling systems, re, uh, rebuilding them along radical lines. This is it, 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 the, the backlash that I saw in the last couple of elections are like this too, politics is too big. It shouldn't be about everything. I mean, that, uh, that's not who we are. And I think that's what is being rejected. 
think, you know, I think the other part of this is that that <coughs> voters have never had the opportunity to weigh in on these enormous and radical school privatization plans that that so many states have enacted. So we now have 10 states that have enacted either universal or close to universal voucher programs. And that means that states now, mostly red states, now pick up the tab for parents who were already sending their kids to private, usually religious schools. Um, so, you know, whatever voucher programs have gone on the ballot, they lose. And so as a result, these states don't put them on the ballot anymore. Well, now, now we see all these places where the policies are on the books and they're turning out to be enormously expensive at the same time that these states have also cut taxes on their wealthiest residents. So that means that within the next election cycle, the bill is going to come due. So in Arizona, for example, their voucher program um, is on track to cost a billion dollars a year. But they've also just implemented a huge tax cut on wealthiest residents. So suddenly they're looking at a big hole in their in their budget. You know, where where are those funds going to come from? And so I think that that conversations that had been abstract are going to become very real and that that voters are going to be you know, like in the past. This has never played out well. Right. Like when when voters start, when parents in particular start to feel Feel the effect of budget cuts in their own kids' lives, swelling class sizes, school closures, uh, uh, teacher layoffs. They respond really negatively, right? There's a, a reason Cost why. Republican governor of Kansas's job. That's, yeah. that's right. That's right. And we, you know, our political memories are so short that we we forget about that. Um, but yep. it's such a cautionary tale, and we're we're really speeding along a very similar track. Wow. Well, I, I think this is uh, going to be an enormously important part of the, sto- the, the, the story of our politics this year. And um, I, I think you've teed up really big issues that we have to pay attention to. I, I want to ask you something different, and it is – you know, I mean, John Dewey's a terrible writer. I slogged through him a couple times because I think he's a very good thinker, even if he's a bad writer. Um, it, but he, he, his, his point, one of his many points, is that there's a real connection between how we learn and how we function as how we learn as kids and how we function as adults in a democracy. Um, and I wonder if this is like still things that people think about or have we. Um, been so completely frightened that the only thing that matters is STEM education anymore. And that's yeah. not all the focus. Do we ever think so about democracy in our schooling? What, you know, what an important question and how relevant is we, you and I have been talking about K-12, but if you think about the what's happening right now in higher ed, that at you know there's this hysterical focus on Harvard, especially where I I'm in Massachusetts, and so yeah. it's you know people just there there's no like some days our you know our paper of record the Boston Globe will have six different stories on Harvard, um, but <sighs> but at, at the state schools that you know where the vast majority of kids actually go, 
you see this, you know, they're, they're basically being, you know, slashed to bits, that there is this effort to, you know, get rid of the liberal arts, to tether the, the mission of the, the, these universities ever more tightly to the needs of employers. And that to say, you know, like what we care about most in the world is that kids, whether they're in K-12 schools or in attending college, that they learn practical skills. And some of the most important things that John Dewey had to say were, you know, were about that and why that was so bad. And he would say that if you can find the ability to, to learn to think critically to the elites, then, you know, we will never, we will never really be a democracy, right? And that, like, I think about that every time I read another story about, you know, say, Wisconsin, um, uh, trying to, uh, you know, push through after years and years of budget austerity and its university system, um, instructing schools where low income and working class kids go to eliminate the liberal arts, right? That's what they're doing. They're basically saying, those kids don't need to learn to think critically. And so, you know, we have to really, when you, when you hear about a policy like that and it's coming to your state too, keep that in mind. If, if, if learning to think critically becomes a luxury, who's going to benefit from it? Yeah. And, and having the, the, all the money the state spends on education, at every level, <clears throat> um, to, to think about that as their job is to do the job training for the companies that hire people, so they can they can offload that cost on the on the public sector, um, and uh, it means that people will get their first job and they may do fine. But I mean, I remember um, working with a liberal arts university in the Middle East where families all want their kids to be engineers. And they said, how are we going to get people to come to these programs? And we ended up um, looking at the data and then telling everybody, you know what, go to these other schools and get a job. Come here, get promoted. Because people who get these skills, these critical thinking skills, they get their first job. And you know what? They get promoted and they keep getting promoted. Um, it, it, so your point that if we make that just for the elites, we've just created a feedback loop that is centuries old and um, dangerous for uh, democracy. The, you know, the other thing I think is that's really important here is that, you know, it's, it's really easy to, to think that, you know, when we look at what's happening on the Republican side, to think that these guys are completely, you know, they're united and that they have a very coherent vision of where they want the country to go. And, and higher ed in particular, I think that they are not united at all. And so, you know, some of them, they want to take back the institutions, right? Like they want, you know, more conservative faculty, more conservative courses. But then, you know, you have others of them who think that many fewer people should go to college, period. And, you know, somebody like, you know, Ron DeSantis, his higher education advisor, thinks that we should get down to numbers closer to the 1960s, that there are too many of the wrong kind of people 
going to college. And then you have your kind of business-minded folks who want to do exactly what you were just describing. They want to offload the cost of training for specific jobs onto the public. And so that, you know, if you're going to go pursue a college degree, you're going to be trained for, uh, for one, for one career and hopefully, um, you know, uh, learn to accept whatever salary is handed to you. Um, those are not, those visions are not coherent. They're not all going in the same direction. And so I think that's something that we need to, to pay attention to because those, you know, as Americans, we tend to have a very expansive view of what, what we want education to do. We just happens that, you know, we're in this, we've sort of walked into this trap now where it's gotten so expensive that, that, you know, in investing in something that's going to pay off seems really like the, the logical move. Well, it is a logical move. The, the debt burden is too big on young people for college right now, for sure. Um, and that's a very complicated problem. Uh, higher <laughs> next, cost, next time, next time. Sure. Um, okay. I mean, if you want to talk about higher ed costs, I'm down with that. That's a really interesting um, and difficult question. Uh, um, yeah, Harvard. Uh, I'm trying to think about whether I actually want to talk about them or not. I think it's, not, it's, really. They've been talked about so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think being a university president today has got to be one of the most complicated and difficult jobs anywhere. Yeah, dear, I bet I can't imagine a, a less appealing job right now. Yeah. Um, so, so as we go into the into the year, you, there are just let's recap a little bit in the time we have. There are states that have um, um, passed sort of. Uh, 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 universal vouchers that the bill mm-hmm. is coming due and voters are going to have to uh, think about that. So it'll be a topic because it's going to mess with state budgets. We have um, uh, sort of this argument on one side that says we need to make our schools ideological and we have a reaction on the other that looks similar, but from the other side, but as you pointed out, the vast majority of Americans don't want that at all. They just want them to do the job, right? They just calm down, take the ideology out of the schools. It's not, that's the wrong lens that we should be looking at our schools with. Um, and we have this massive privatization movement that is tied to uh, the idea of making all schools religious, many schools religious, but also um, has a huge sort of greed factor to it. Um, all of this is going to be, I, I don't know how candidates avoid these issues. Maybe in the presidential race, it won't get talked about as much, but at, at every other level, it's going to be impossible for candidates to avoid. Uh, that's, so that's absolutely the case. And I think, you know, one thing that has really, really changed over the last few years is that, School choice and private religious school choice in particular has really become a litmus test issue for Republicans. And so, you know, Governor Greg Abbott in Texas has spent the last um, few years working feverishly to try to enact uh, school voucher program. And he's been, you know, he's he's been 
stymied again and again because rural Republicans will not go along with him. And so what you're seeing now is that that Abbott and uh, a bunch of big money school choice groups, including the one that, that Betsy DeVos started, they're now primarying those rural Republicans. That, that refused to go along with, with Greg Abbott. And so, so you're absolutely right that, that if you're in a state where this stuff is being fought over, you're, you're not going to stop hearing about this stuff. And, and yeah. I think that in some ways our national media does us a disservice by, by failing to accurately reflect just how key these these issues are right that they're like school choice tends to it's an also ran when when folks are writing about state politics and the issues that are being fought over right but if they understand those issues the way you describe them they would see them as part and parcel with every single one of the big fights we're in and um absolutely uh, so, absolutely so and uh and a major um, uh, that that they are driving a backlash to the backlash, mm-hmm. um, which which really which you know you described so so eloquently that you know like came out of the the pandemic, and and that in order you know like that isn't over yet, um, that you know like sense that you know like all the things that you just described people's resistance to to seeing their schools politicized the exhaustion with culture war issues that that stuff is going to serve as a motivator to voters in a way that i don't think journalists are 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 enough attuned to yeah well um i'm i'm uh, in awe of the depth of your knowledge about this stuff and uh, and very grateful that you uh, spent a little bit of time on this terrible anniversary talking about this stuff with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I, I can't say what an honor to join you on your first episode of the year. And, <laughs> and hopefully at some point we'll have uh, some good news to talk about. Well, good or bad, we'll talk several times during the year because these issues are going to be percolating and unfolding and spiraling through all of the battles of this year. So thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate it.